Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Josh Barkin, and my memoir is called Wonder Travels. After discovering that his wife, while on a six-month trip around the world, had an affair, author Josh Barkin set out on his own journey of self-discovery and love. The result is a memoir titled Wonder Travels, and it captures the heartache, confusion, and even joy that Barkin experienced following his separation and divorce. And probably most shocking, that this journey of self-discovery took Barkin halfway around the world to meet the man who had come between his marriage. I recently spoke with Josh Barkin about what he learned through his first marriage, about his healing journey, and much more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Wandered Travels is a memoir divided into four sections, and so maybe we should tackle it in that manner. The first section is titled Learning About the Affair. And I mean, the first line of the book eliminates any need for caution about spoilers in that regard, right? So can you set it up for us? Where does this memoir begin? Well, the memoir begins with the shock of discovering that my wife had had an affair with a man who she met on a beach in Morocco. She met him, and I call him Mohammed in the memoir. All the names are changed. She met him during a six-month trip around the world that she had taken. Uh, She was 40 years old at the time and was really tired with her work and wanting to find some kind of rejuvenation in her life. And as she went around the world, she became more and more immersed in her own travels. At the very end of her trip, or almost the very end, she met this man in Morocco. I discovered this not immediately. She came back from her six-month trip around the world. And after about two months of being back home, in a sense that things were very odd, she indicated that she was not happy in the marriage anymore. But I had no sense of why, even though I was trying to kind of find out the reasons and the initial sense of unhappiness. And then she said that she was going to go back to Spain, where she was from Spain, Luciana, my uh former wife, and she said she had to go back to meet her sister, who was about to have a baby. And this seemed strange, for one, because she had 16 other nieces and nephews who she had never gone back to see any of them be born. Uh, She did go back, and I said, we really need to work on our relationship. She went back for three weeks, and initially when she went back, after a couple days of being there, she then said she was going to go on to Ibiza, which for anyone who knows, it's an island in the Mediterranean, which is really kind of a party island. And this seemed very odd to me. I couldn't understand why she was wanting to go to Ibiza. Uh, but this was all really just a pretext so that she could go back to Morocco, where she met Mohammed again, spent more time with him again. and. As she came back, there were 12 days of kind of silence as I began to be very concerned, not knowing where she was, why she was going to this island, more and more communication being cut off. And eventually, total communication was cut off for 12 days. Um, And finally, I kind of coaxed her back, assured her that things would be fine if she came home. And so when she came back, by the time she came back, I discovered as I was more and more worried about 
what was happening? What are my responsibilities for my spouse? She, she could be in all sorts of trouble um, if she's going off to this island. What's happening? And uh, very slowly, friend, a friend in particular started to tell me, look, you really need to start thinking more about yourself, your own situation here. And um, eventually it came out, she told me that my wife had been having this affair. So this is just an incredibly raw memoir. I mean, we're thrown in at the beginning of you learning of your wife's affair, and then it immediately moves into separation and divorce. And in the section titled The Divorce, you wrote, for years, I've felt we communicated through often beautiful silence. But you were blindsided by this affair. What did you discover about your marriage during this time of ending it? Well, there are so many things that you learn, of course, when a marriage ends. And first, I think it's very important for me to make clear that this is not a memoir of, of blame. This is not a memoir seeking to really, there are two people always involved in the end of a marriage. And so one of the things that you discover, though, with that kind of silence that you mentioned, and I, one of the ways I describe it is that Luciana, it just as in with Native Americans, uh, with the, the Inuit population where stereotypically it said that there are kind of 52 different ways to say uh, snow, that there were kind of 52 different ways in which there was silence with Luciana. And sometimes these could be quite beautiful, but in other ways they often seemed as if they were, uh, something was was not being expressed that was being felt very strongly within. And over time, as I had to reflect and over the course of writing the book and, and the distance that comes, narrative distance, as you look back, I initially wrote this memoir quite a few years ago in the moment. And then looking back as I was editing it, you know, you start to think about, of course, what were the things that were making her unhappy in the relationship, a feeling of kind of being dominated, a feeling that she didn't quite have necessarily the sense of freedom that she wanted to some extent. And at the same time, some of those silences seem to come out of just a kind of general keeping things hidden. Uh, for example, just when I had met her, she'd been with someone for five years. She never talked about him, even though she'd been with him for five years. And a whole series of things over time came out, some uh, abuse that she had suffered as a child. Um, and that took quite a bit for me to find out about. And so there was often a kind of a sense of... Um, quiet that didn't bring forth if you're going to have a relationship function we always talk about communication being the necessary part that's there for people to both express their love for each other but then also to find out the ways in which they're not communicating things that they're less happy about and that's what was missing to, to a great extent you know in that same section in the divorce there was a shift in perspective for a moment around page 80 and it begins with she thinks and then we begin to see through her lens until she disappears on page 87. And those page numbers may be wrong in, in the final copy, I understand. But talk to me about this part where there was a shift in perspective and we started seeing things from Luciana's perspective. Yeah, I think it's a section that I'm proud of from a writing standpoint because the narrative of the memoir does take largely place in first person. And so we're often getting my point of view, even though I'm trying in my point of view to understand as much as I can of what Luciana was feeling what her disappointments were, and at the same time, just trying to deal with the shock. I begin this whole section in third person. And so what it allows is this capacity to move back and forth between the two of us as we take a walk. 
And so we begin this walk in Central Park. This is already after we've separated already as we're um, going through the divorce. And as we begin the walk, initially, I'm trying to think through her third person point of view, or we're getting her third person point of view, the things that she feels, for example, that she, if she wants to buy something, maybe, um, maybe I'm not approving of it or something like that. And so it's clear that it's me in this third person, in a sense, because I'm imagining what she's thinking. And over the course of the walk, though, what begins to happen also is a sense of her own kind of admission that in some ways she's been sexually not very forthcoming, kind of using our sex life in some ways to create a distance, as she says, it being a buzzkill in bed. And we begin to enter this kind of sense that there were things that start to be kind of a little more neutral in neither perspective, not necessarily either in hers or mine in a more kind of objective way, uh, things like not really being touched in, in many ways, me. And then as we go along, we finally move towards the kind of sense where I talk about, for example, I'm reading a book that's very popular at the time by Harville Hendricks. Um, which is a kind of way of working through some of the reasons why someone might be in a relationship that ends up separating. And she talks about how she's not interested in any of that kind of way of thinking or analyzing or trying to figure out what's happening to us. She just wants the kind of magic of a kind of relationship. So there's a shift that takes place between her own sense of um, I, I wouldn't call it grievances, but unhappiness initially, and then shifting into a kind of a sense of what is missing uh, in the relationship from my perspective as well, a kind of not growing, not a, a, an unwillingness to look at the cause of unhappiness in the relationship. I found it interesting and a little daunting, the sheer amount of fitness you incorporated into your life during your separation and divorce. You wrote, I had never found enough balance between life of the mind and life of the body. And then later you wrote, I finally understood my body had to be part of any attempt for me to become happy. I'm, I'm also thinking about, you know, later your hikes and your month of biking in Rome. So talk to me about how you found balance between mind and body. Yeah, I think one of the things that I discovered over the course of going through the divorce and the separation, um, Luciana had indicated at the time that, that she felt I wasn't physically active enough, um, even though we would take these very long walks for miles and miles down Manhattan. And I'd never been someone who was particularly overweight, but she had been very more and more absorbed in yoga, more and more absorbed in kind of physical fitness. And that came out of a personal satisfaction for her, but I think also a sense probably of, of really seeking to find some happiness in her own life. And what I found is once the shock of the separation came or the shock of the affair, I needed to begin the process of healing. This is a memoir ultimately about the process of shock. What happens when you're faced with something that you're really blindsided by? And how do you go through, how do you begin to grasp a sense of how you can heal from that? This is not a self-help book by any means. It's written in a literary form, but it does offer, I think, some kind of path for some people who are looking to what um, might help them. And for me, I started to run. I started to run every day. I started to run first, it, completely exhausted. I lived at 109th and Broadway, and I started to run in Riverside Park in New York City. And just going say 15 blocks that first time felt exhausting. 
And over time, I started running miles and miles along that park. I began to run throughout the winter and feeling the strength that could come from that kind of physical activity and ultimately overcoming a sense of personal inadequacy to a certain extent, because you always feel anyone who goes through the shock of an affair feels some sense of inadequacy or what what's wrong? What have I done wrong? And beginning the process of one element along with thinking differently, psychologically, beginning to make the body strong. And ultimately that culminates in going to Morocco, climbing Tubkal Mountain, which is the highest peak in North Africa, doing a multi-day trek that's quite strenuous, going many, many thousands of feet up and down. There's some of the highest altitude changes between peaks and valleys in the mountains in Morocco. And really coming to that sense of inner strength so that I could overcome some of these senses of fear and become quite strong myself and then go and meet the person who Luciana had had her affair with. You know, this healing, this process of healing, to me, I want to incorporate the third section, Wonder Travels, which shares the title of your book. So talk to me about why you left New York and where you landed and what was propelling you and how this assisted with this process of healing. I left New York because I knew I needed to do something new. And, you know, the old saying that kind of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. It's not that I was thinking that consciously, but what I was thinking by that time, I had gone to New York City to support my wife's career in the publishing industry, had been there, um, purchased an apartment so we could live there. And everything had been centered around trying to make sure that she was good in New York City and fulfilling these kind of career goals. And there was no real purpose for me being there at the time that we had separated and divorced ultimately. And I had gone through a period in which I had uh, kind of flailed about going through a number of attempted brief relationships or encounters with really a kind of very interesting, but in a sense, wild group of people in New York City, everything from the photo editor at the New York Times to someone who had been studying philosophy but was literally missing a shoe when I uh, went out on a date with her one night and ending up singing La Vie en Rose and kind of nightclubs and doing karaoke. And throughout many of these relationships, really finding an incapacity to connect and realizing that there had to be something more. Many of these people in some ways were quite wounded and needed so much from me, help from me, that I couldn't give because I myself needed help. So I had a friend who was in El Paso, Texas, who had been a New Yorker, and he said, why don't you come out to El Paso? This will be a kind of new beginning. And the danger, of course, is always thinking, can you just run away? Is it possible? I had a pianist friend who told me, someone quite wise who was in his 80s at the time that he told me, and he said, wherever you go, you're just going to bring yourself with you. You'll bring your problems with you. So that's not going to kind of solve anything for you. But I had this instinct in this sense, precisely because I'd grown up in a family in which we had done quite a bit of traveling when I was younger, living in Africa and East Africa, living in India, living in France, living in many other foreign countries, in a sense that this was, in fact, something worthwhile to do. And beginning writing this memoir in the act of moving was something worthwhile doing. So I went out to El Paso there. Uh, the person I was with in El Paso was gay, discovered many of the kind of gay nightclubs of El Paso. Uh, but he himself was an alcoholic. And so that wasn't going to heal me. And so I began to go further and further 
A friend of his came through who worked at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. That brought me to Mexico City. And then in Mexico City, I fell in love with a painter who I call Monica in the book. In the section, Meeting the Lover, you wrote about traveling on your path to Muhammad to meet the man who had an affair with your wife. So talk to me about this need to go to Morocco to meet your ex-wife's lover because they weren't together anymore. Yeah, at the time they they weren't together, although I didn't fully know that. I just knew that um, that wasn't fully understood to me. But two years had passed and I was already in a this relationship with this painter, Monica, who I had very much fallen in love with in Mexico. And so in many ways, things were going quite well for me. But at the same time, I think one of the things that this book is so much about is and it's again not a conscious thing when it happens it's over time but it's the, this idea of what do you do with your past i had spent 15 years with luciana and we had experienced all sorts of things we had experienced as i describe in one place that kind of comfort that you have as you go down the road when you're driving with the person who's your spouse and you feel so connected as you're driving. Um, I had experienced the walks that we would do, the kind of looking at birds together, traveling throughout the world, traveling to Cambodia and Thailand and many other places. And so there's the question of what do you do with that past? Because once you separate, as many other people probably listening know, there's a sense that that past can be lost. And you don't want to lose that past. You want to figure out a way to incorporate the past into your present. And so what I didn't understand fully was that in going to meet Muhammad in Morocco, part of what I was trying to do ultimately was to overcome some fears, one of those fears, what to do with the past. And part of it was really this sense of what I was beginning to understand, what I had begun to understand in Mexico through all sorts of what I would call amazing, wondrous traveling experiences, traveling throughout Oaxaca, was how to live in the present. And going to Morocco and meeting Mohammed meant not kind of hiding from that past that had been so central with uh, Luciana, but instead confronting it completely directly, not being afraid of that past, not holding it as a kind of kernel of fear in the back of my mind in terms of what had happened with the destruction of my marriage, but instead going to meet the person, wanting to see him as a human being, wanting to discover who this person had been of significance, obviously, to my former wife, and wanting to therefore kind of, in a sense, humanize him and make her relationship with him not something to hide in the past, but to incorporate the past into the present. Early in the book, you wrote that you felt you were, quote, like Penelope waiting for her Odysseus to return. And then later, when you left Mexico for Spain and Morocco and Italy and France, there was a moment when a woman was interested in you. And you wrote, the body may yearn for company all the time, but there is something to be said for being able to go away on a long trip and for staying true to the person who waits for you back home. Did you feel like the roles had reversed, that you had shifted from Penelope to Odysseus? I mean, even though you didn't act on anything that had happened in Rome, did you feel it like a shift of understanding a bit? Well, I think what happened 
in those two sections. The first one, as, as you mentioned, in the sense of being Penelope waiting for Luciana to come back, I was waiting for her to come back from the six-month trip around the world that she had taken. And I had been following throughout the trip where she had been everywhere, following it on the map, often setting up the people that she was staying with. For example, when she first went to Istanbul, she stayed with friends of mine, setting up, say, airplane tickets as she went along, arranging those kinds of things. And having that sense of this odd sense that we have in the modern world where we can watch where someone goes via the communication that we have with email and those kinds of things. This was in 2008, so it was kind of prior to a lot of technology that we have now. But a sense there of waiting, because even though I was in contact with email and setting up these kinds of things, each place where she was going, I couldn't be with her. And I couldn't be with her in part because I was just finishing up a book that was about to come out at that time. And she wanted to take six months, this kind of radical, almost midlife crisis at the age of 40. So I was waiting at home at that time. And the second section that you mentioned at the very end of the book then takes place in Rome. This is after I've gone to meet Mohammed in Morocco. And there's a kind of um, denouement to the, the story in which I'm in Rome. A friend had given me an apartment to use for a month in Rome. I'm writing there. But every day is, I'm biking. I'm biking throughout the city. I'm taking in the tremendous wonders of the city itself, all the incredible churches, the art. And every day feeling that kind of strength again and also feeling those layers of the history of Rome um, that sense of how the past is incorporated in the present of Rome, where you have the kind of layers of, um, you know, pre-Romans, then Romans and Visigoths and those kinds of things. And when I get to this woman that you mentioned who began to show an interest in me, she was young, she was a graduate student, she was taking care of other students there in Rome, and she clearly had some interest in me and would come up every kind of day over at least a week and wanted to make it clear to me that, that that she was interested. And I think at that time, because I was very much in love with Monica back in Mexico, I not only wanted to be faithful completely, but no matter what I would have, it's just the way I feel from a value standpoint. So I could see certainly the kind of temptations that can take place over a trip as they did for Luciana. And the difference is, is that I didn't act on those temptations. And this isn't really a judgment so much of Luciana it is on the one hand an, an understanding of what she went through, but but it is a judgment, I have to say, in the sense of feeling that there are different ways to end things. And that's, I think, one of the, the things that saddens me about the way that the marriage ended. Earlier, you said you were, you know, writing about this in real time and then editing it later. Was that your process? Did you write as this was happening? Did you write for yourself or did you write knowing this was going to become a memoir later? Yeah, I always set out writing the book in, intending for it to have a wide audience. And I'm not interested in certainly writing a book for the public as kind of therapy. You, you know, our own journals might be our own journals and, and uh, someone's individual therapy would be boring, frankly, if it doesn't have some greater meaning for a wide public, something that they can both appreciate the aesthetic of the language and they can just appreciate the fact that things have been filtered and well thought through and um, and actually be in a full story. So I was never thinking about writing it just for myself. But at the same time, I wanted to do a kind of new memoir or a memoir that I hadn't read before. And that is usually, almost always, memoir is something by its nature, memory, where we're thinking back with memoir. And the French word 
you're looking back with this kind of narrative distance. And often it's many years later where there's a kind of great wisdom that has been accrued. And it gives a sense of knowingness about the past and a sense of kind of ordering the past in this way in which all is understood about the past. And what I wanted was to do the opposite in this memoir. I wanted to capture the messiness of what it is to live in a moment. Now, I didn't start out writing it at the very moment when I was going through the separation and divorce. Things were too shocking and I wouldn't have even wanted to write anything. I was simply going through the pain and the kind of then flailing in New York City initially for the first, say, nine months or so. So the affair took place in 2008 over some couple different periods there. By the summer of 2009, a full year later from when I discovered the affair, that's when I began to write the book in El Paso. And it still was close enough that I felt, okay, I can capture this emotional rawness which as you say, I think comes out in the book and it's exactly what I want people to feel. I want them to feel the kind of intensity of what it is to experience the shock of an affair. And at the same time, I also wanted to not necessarily know the outcome of what was happening that I was going to write about because I wanted to use the book in a sense as a vehicle in which I could give myself the liberty, the license to try and begin a voyage, whatever it was going to be, with the goal of trying to find some happiness. And that goal, in a way, just sounds, that word happiness, so so kind of in some ways simple, and yet um, uh, it seems like too big a thing, or why would you begin a book project with that? But what I really wanted to do was to use this memoir as a chance to begin to orient myself into experiences that would give me some kind of happiness. And as I went along, I never wrote about experiences only in the moment. I would experience them. And then as I experienced them, naturally, not trying to ever do anything because of the story, then I would begin to write about those things. So, you know, for example, I never went to Morocco to meet Muhammad because of the story, but it was something I felt compelled to do. And then having felt compelled to do it, I tried to write about it, to understand it, to convey it, to get that, that strong experience of what it was like, very powerful. So we last spoke about your collection of stories titled Mexico. And before that, you published a novel, Blind Speed. And now you've written a memoir. Do you have a preference for one form or another? I don't have a preference for any of these different genres. I think that each one gives us a really powerful way to enter into writing. Um, Short stories give you the intensity of something that is by its very nature, because it's short, it has the condensed feeling of an experience. Novels allow you to have that kind of digression where you can wander with the character and the protagonist. And the memoir, the challenge of the memoir, but also the wonderful thing about the memoir is to be completely honest with yourself. And I think it's the one thing that I've been trying to think because in in some ways these four books are so different. But there is a kind of search for honesty and truth in these four books that I think in some ways does unite them. In my novel, Blind Speed, I'm looking at some of the ways in which history is constructed in Boston and some of the lies that we tell ourselves politically. In the stories in Mexico, there's often this sense of the need to convey the rawness of the kind of violence that was taking place and is taking place in Mexico. 
and the kind of personal flaws of the characters that they must confront when they're caught up in some of the violence. And here in Wonder Travels, this memoir, I'm also trying to get at that powerful truth to understand why did this affair happen? What was I going to do about it? And how was I going to make myself stronger? Do you have anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Well, I think one of the things that I, I want to consider is that along with trying to figure out the ways in, in which to incorporate the past into the present and to kind of unify those two and live in the present. For example, there's this, I think, a beautiful moment in the book where I'm on the coast of Oaxaca in the Pacific and there's a young kid who's boogie boarding and surfing and there's a sense of um, just extreme skill that he has as he does this kind of boogie boarding and it's something i try and imitate as i at first can't do this and then find a way to be able to to do it and what i discover is it's not the kind of anticipation of riding the wave it's getting literally just on top of it and as i'm doing this it's that sense again of being very much in the present. So that's one of the things. But the other thing that I really found so powerful as I traveled in Morocco was seeing along with the incredible things that I experienced in Morocco, incredible music, the Jama'a al-Fana in Marrakesh, this wonderful, amazing public square where every kind of experience takes place, music and Bedouins coming in from the desert and uh, all that kind of art and the kind of hammams that would go to the public baths and taking in those incredible experiences. So all these things that made the traveling kind of amazingly rich, intense, profound. But I also saw, of course, and if you're honest as a traveler, I saw the struggle of the people that were around me. I saw the struggle of people in the high Atlas Mountains. While I was overcoming my own marital crisis, many of these people were dealing with a much more subsistence kind of struggle, dealing with the struggle of how do they get enough food out of this very dry land that's in Morocco. And I mention this because it, it's that sense, and there's that recognition that takes place in the memoir that we all suffer. We all go through tremendous suffering. This is a story of the suffering that I encountered and faced and then found a way to overcome or incorporate into my life. And you begin, once you really begin to see the suffering that other people go through simultaneously, and obviously on a much more powerful way when people are simply trying to find a way to, to feed themselves, it gives you a level of empathy that is necessary to move beyond yourself and to heal yourself. And so that recognition of struggle, of mutual struggle, is something that I really feel comes throughout Wonder Travels. Well, the book is Wonder Travels. Josh Barkin, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Beth. That was Josh Barkin, author of the book Wonder Travels, which was published by Roundabout Press. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.